0: There's just so much throughout the last year and a half that has really drawn uh, sharply into contrast how much preemption matters for public
1: health. Take a moment to consider all the factors that impact your health. What comes to mind?
2: Your diet, perhaps your lifestyle, like whether you exercise, drink or smoke.
1: Maybe you thought about your family history of diseases like cancer or diabetes.
2: But health and well-being go beyond that. The field of public health is about thinking broader, thinking beyond the individual, about how our built environment affects us, how laws and policies impact us, and how the social forces influence our behavior and well-being.
1: Each week, this podcast will discuss one topic from the wonderful world of public health to reveal these ubiquitous hidden forces and artifacts. One episode at a time, we will show how public health is all around us.
2: Welcome to Everything is Public Health.
1: Everything is Public Health.
2: Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm Cass. I'm MJ. So today, MJ, we're going to talk about a topic that a lot of people probably don't think about or haven't heard about unless they're a lawyer or work in a specific field where this thing is an issue, and that's the idea of preemption. This is a topic that most states have these policies, but a lot of folks really have no concept of what they are. When did you first learn about preemption?
1: I was one of those people, like I didn't know about this concept until I started grad school. And it's a very niche topic that I think it's mostly, like you said, mostly lawyers and people who are in this field would know it. But I feel like it's an important concept because public health deals with it all the time. And to illustrate how invisible this topic is, we've already talked about this in our previous episode. Can you guess which one?
2: Well, I already know. It's the the abstinence only sex ed episode.
1: Yes. Do you remember specifically what about it was preemption?
2: Well, I mean, I know what preemption is, so it's I'm sort of cheating a little bit. So in the context of abstinence only, if the state says you have to teach these particular topics, then that's what you have to teach in your sex ed classes
1: yeah so because our government is shaped like a pyramid there are certain laws that are i don't want to say yeah kind of yeah above there are certain laws that are above some laws
2: they supersede yeah
1: supersedes because federal government sits on top of the state government state government sits on top of the local government and as a result whatever is the higher level will take precedent it will preempt the lower level law so in abstinence only for example california they have a state law that says you have to teach contraception so local jurisdictions. They cannot not teach contraception because that is part of the state law. What they could do, they could be creative about it. They could design a sex ed program that has one day of contraception and the rest is not. Right. They could do. So there are some loopholes to this, but they have to teach it because the state law preempts it. So uh, neither of us are lawyers and neither of us are public health lawyers. So I'm thrilled and honored that we have an actual public health lawyer on the show to help us with some of our legal-based inquiries.
2: I'm super excited.
1: So I'll let him introduce himself.
0: My name is Alex McCourt. I am an assistant scientist at uh, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in the Department of Health Policy and Management. I'm a public health lawyer, so most of my work focuses on the relationship between state, local, and federal laws and public health outcomes.
2: You know, Alex is, Alex is a very humble. Dr. Alex McCourt is an assistant scientist with our Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy at the Bloomberg School of Public Health. He trained as a lawyer. He's trained as a PhD. So he has this brilliant combination of legal expertise and public health sort of research methods and expertise. So he's just super bright and glad that we were able to get him to answer some of these questions.
1: We are extremely lucky to have him on the show. And I think a good place to start would be for a professional to explain what are the different types of preemption we see in this country.
0: Yeah. So this kind of brings up a really important distinction, which is the difference between express preemption and implied preemption. So, express preemption is when the higher level of government basically says, we are explicitly preempting what the lower level of government might do. So, they say, you know, a state might say, The local like cities and counties can't do anything in this area. We are saying that we are going to handle gun policy. We are going to handle COVID-related policies and local governments can't do anything. That's kind of defined expressly in a statute. Then there's implied preemption, which almost always involves a court. So that what that process typically looks like is the higher level of government either institutes a statute and the lower level of government sues trying to determine whether or not they have the power to act or the opposite maybe the local level of government or the lower level does something and the higher level files a lawsuit challenging whether or not they can do that.
1: And preemption is a legal concept that is particularly relevant to the field of public health because when it comes to public health states tend to have a lot of power.
0: The US Constitution sets it up so that the federal government has very limited powers. The federal government can only act in ways that are enumerated in the Constitution. They can only act if the Constitution gives them the power to act. Public health powers are generally reserved to the states. This is through the 10th Amendment, through something called police powers, which um, is through kind of an older definition of police powers that, that incorporates kind of protecting the public's health. We're not really talking about law enforcement here, but kind of protecting overall public welfare and health. So states generally can act really broadly without limits to protect public health. And the federal government doesn't necessarily have that power. So a key example that's, you know, that's been in the news recently is that the federal government can't really institute a mask mandate. There's really no power that the federal government has to issue a widespread mask mandate. States, on the other hand, can do that. So that's one area where there's never going to be really a preemption conflict because the federal government has a set of powers and the state government has a set of powers. Now it's very different when we get to state and local because states have this broad police power, this broad public health power, and localities, cities and counties only have the power that the state gives them, the state constitution, state laws. And so we've seen a lot of conflict again about mask mandates. There have been some states that have said, cities and counties cannot Have mask
2: mandates. So, some states have preempted the requirement for masks. They've said, (laughs) Florida. (laughs) They've said you may not mandate mask use. And this could be in the context of schools, which is certainly a a concern right now. But it's also extended to businesses and other places. So, certain states uh, have said if companies require their employees to wear masks or require customers to wear masks, like they can be fined. Um, School board, school sort of superintendents and things have been threatened that they would lose their job or be fined if they require students to wear masks. So there's a, a lot of topics where preemption comes into play.
1: So aside from mask mandates, how else do prevention play in public health? Are they typically used to benefit public health or are they typically used against public health?
0: There are admittedly not a whole lot of good examples when it comes to public health. And there's a really specific reason for this. I think, you know, most people who work in public health or have an appreciation of public health understand that public health is a very localized discipline. You know, we're talking about communities and neighborhoods and demographic groups that may have specific needs. And so a lot of times it's local health departments and local groups that are trying to affect public health local governments have the least power. So they're often limited the most by preemption, which is why we rarely see kind of public health benefits coming from preemption. But there are some examples. A classic example of of benefits of preemption is the airline smoking ban. You'll see a lot of public health lawyers talking about this. And the idea here was that it wasn't going to work to have a a piecemeal approach to this. The states couldn't have different laws throughout the state as, you know, planes are land or throughout the country as planes are landing, taking off, flying across states. It was going to be complicated. And so the federal government put in place a, a ban throughout the entire country that you couldn't smoke on planes. And that is undoubtedly good for public health. And so we see some Instances like that where preemption is is good because maybe some states would have said, no, it's fine. It's totally fine to smoke on planes. But the federal government shut the door on that. There are other examples, things like civil rights laws, environmental standards that are that are set by the federal government. And maybe states could go more protective. You know, states could absolutely enact civil rights laws that are more protective than the federal government. But the federal government has set what's often called the floor generally called floor preemption. And they've said, here is the baseline standard.
1: There's two types of preemption. One is a floor and one is a ceiling. In public health, generally we like floor preemptions because public health is interested in serving the health of the public. And in many cases, that means setting some sort of basic minimal level of protection or regulation that makes sure that states don't dip below this safe level.
2: An example of floor preemption are federal laws regulating guns. So states are not allowed to let felons, for example, buy guns because felons are prohibited under the Gun Control Act of 1968. Right. So they basically said you can have more prohibitions if you want, but you may not take away any of the ones we've put in place.
1: Yeah. So the other preemption is ceiling preemption. And generally speaking, I'm sure there are exceptions, but generally speaking, public health people are not a fan of ceiling preemptions because ceiling preemption basically say this is the most number of regulations or limitations that states can have. States cannot go more restrictive than this. And uh, you might think, oh, what's wrong with that? Well, if that ceiling is very, very low, that becomes an issue because we can't regulate things to the level that is actually effective or actually safe
0: it is much easier to find harmful examples of preemption. So an example from a, a field that I've done a lot of work in, which is is gun violence, is that there are many states that have instituted really severe preemption policies. They've basically said that states or cities and counties cannot enact gun laws that are stricter than the state. So, you know, they can't ban the carry of guns in certain areas unless the state Bans them; they can't ban handguns if the state is not banning them. Things like that, and they've actually gone even a step further, which is to write statutes that actually punish local officials who violate the statute. So there are some of these statutes that say if, if a city government passes a law that restricts guns in a way that is not allowed by the state, they could actually be fined thousands and thousands of dollars personally for putting these statutes in place, which is really very extreme. Normally, like we were talking about, you know, these are usually legal disputes that where courts say, yes, you can do that or no, you can't. But here there's actually a punishment attached, which is, is relatively rare.
2: Also, local jurisdictions often have a better sense of what's going to work for them. And so if you preempt these local laws, it can make it more challenging to come up with innovative strategies for gun violence prevention.
1: And another thing about these ceiling preventions is that they may not be intended as preemptions. Like they're not designed in the way that was like, we're going to preempt all state laws by doing this. It's sometimes they designed a law in a certain way that 20 or 30 years down the line because of changes in technology, changes in culture, changes, and other things, it becomes a ceiling preemption just because it created like this regulatory vacuum. So the ceiling preemption that I thought about is ERISA, which I don't know what it stands for anymore, but I'm sure you know what ERISA is.
2: Yeah, ERISA is sort of how you regulate benefits. So it's the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, which it's beyond retirement, which is interesting because it also thinks about the rules- that are put in place for like health benefits and whether self-insured companies are required to follow different state and federal laws related to health plans and coverage. So that, that's generally what I think about when I'm thinking about ERISA.
1: Yeah, so in ERISA, ERISA doesn't just regulate retirement plan and also regular employee benefit plans, so health plans, it also regulates that. And in ERISA, there is a language that they put in that basically says federal law, something, something related to any employee benefit plans. And this is way too vague. Um, (laughs) And the consequence of this vague language related to any employee benefit plans, it sort of made this regulatory ceiling because if any states were to say, oh, for example, let's say California say we want to mandate that all employers with more than 100 employees need to have a certain level of health plans for its employees just because we don't want these companies to give out like really bad health plans. They can't do that because ERISA, and this this is something that the court has validated, has this language that says, related to any employee benefit plans, it is the realm of the federal government. So no states can pass any sort of uh, mandate or some sort of health plan regulatory in that space because ERISA has preempted it.
2: Yeah, so you're talking about a sort of unintended sealing preemption, but there are also times where it's used strategically to keep things from happening. So I think a lot about cigarettes, right? So we have federal rules and how cigarettes can be labeled, advertised, etc. And states have a hard time getting around that, which is an interesting contrast to cars, right? So California, they buy a lot of cars. And when California puts a rule in place about emission standards or safety features or whatever, pretty much every other state benefits from that because the motor vehicle industry is like, well, we're not going to make one set of cars for California, and then a set of cars for everybody else. So they just they sort of follow along. But a state couldn't say, well, we're going to require cigarette companies to do X because it's preempted by federal law. And you know, not to bang my work-related drum all the time, but I think the the preemption that we see around guns at the state level is certainly very intentional. They did not want local jurisdictions to have capacity to regulate guns, tax them, make them you know, more expensive, make it harder for the gun industry to operate. And so they said, nope, you can't do that.
1: And you brought up the cigarette thing. And the federal law preempting states from acting on cigarettes is the Federal Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act, which basically say only the federal government can make rules about cigarette marketing, cigarette advertising. And that have set a ceiling of regulation. Like States cannot go beyond what the federal laws have said. And if you're wondering, well, couldn't the federal law just be like very, very strict? Sure. If the ceiling was very high, this wouldn't be an issue. But due to persistent lobbying from the tobacco companies, they have made sure that the federal ceiling is low. So if states want to enact anything that's more stringent than what the federal government currently allows, that is not possible because the federal law has preempted the state laws. This might have changed in the recent years, because this is a quite an old law, so I'm not super sure. But this brings up the idea that preemptions are a favorite tool of lobbyists, both at the federal and the state level.
0: Preemption is a really favored strategy of lobbyists, especially kind of big industry. Lobbyists and and those that kind of have interests in big industry and business often push for preemption provisions in statutes. They want it to be explicit that localities, cities, counties, et cetera, cannot regulate in this area. And they do this because they often have much more power at the state level. They have much more sway. They can pressure legislators much more at the state level than they can at the local level. That would be very uh, resource intensive. And the truth is that certain localities are just not going to agree with them politically, right? There are going to be some cities that don't care what, you know, big tobacco thinks, for example. And they're just going to say, uh, you know, I don't care. We're going to to ban the sale of tobacco in general. Who cares? We, you know, we don't, we're not affected by you. At the state level, they are because there's more money involved. There's more power. And so, you know, they can have more targeted approach. So this is, you know, this is one reason to try to fight for these, preemption clauses if what you want to do is limit the fight over your interests to the state legislature, um, kind of the state house. So if you are, again, you know, a tobacco lobbyist or maybe you are interested in um, the energy industry, you know, whatever, you are trying to get state statutes passed that say explicitly cities and counties may not regulate in this area because then you don't have to worry about it. You only have to worry about what's happening in Annapolis, what's happening in Sacramento, you know, et cetera.
1: Another reason why preemption is important to public health is because that once a preemption policy is in place, they are incredibly hard to get rid of.
0: Yeah, so it's tough. It's tough to overcome preemption, especially where it is expressly in a statute where a state has said that that cities and counties can't regulate. It's very difficult to overcome that the easiest way is new legislation. Litigation is also an option. You know, you can try to either force litigation by passing a law and that conflicts with the state law and seeing what happens, or trying to sue the state to try to get them to change the law because it violates, you know, some, you know, your individual rights or, or some other provision of state or federal law. But that can be more expensive. It can be more difficult. Whereas changing legislation, while also difficult, Absolutely difficult is at least in theory possible for any area of of public health. but you know, let's be honest, it's tough, it's tough to overcome overcome preemption once it's in place. So maybe the the most important thing is to identify areas where there isn't express preemption yet and try to prevent it from being put in place
1: so this is the part where I want to have more of a discussion with you about. When I first thought about preemption, I thought, well, it might be a tool that could be used both ways, both for public health and against public health. It just depends on how it's used. But it is more likely than not that preemption is used against public health. And why is that?
2: So I think one of the main challenges that public health has is that nobody thinks about public health until something goes wrong. Right. We were not prepared for the COVID-19 pandemic because we had slashed public health budgets and resources, we had cut public health departments, and we were in in no way ready to do the kind of surveillance and tracking and response that we needed when COVID-19 came onto the scene. So one of the reasons we're doing this podcast, right, is to highlight the fact that everything is public health, because people just really don't think about it. I think the biggest challenge that public health has is staying on the radar when things are going well. The whole point of public health is to keep bad things from happening in the first place. And if bad things aren't happening, then we aren't paying attention to the reasons those bad things aren't happening. Like if a car doesn't crash, we don't think, oh, wow, what things, you know, I drove safely to work and back today. What are all the things that kept that, you know, the case? We, we just don't even think about it. So I think that is a, a big challenge that public health has, such that when people are thinking about creating policy, thinking about preemption, public health doesn't always have a seat at the table because we're busy working on prevention and not always doing a great job of advocating for why we need to continue doing the things we're doing.
1: Right. And so that's why a lot of times when these state and federal policies are written, they set a ceiling that's far too low because the public health people are not at the table.
2: So I think that at the end of the day, public health is about population health, and that requires engagement with the communities you're working with. It's essential that public health is working not just at the top level dictating down because that can't. That's not always effective because different communities are experiencing different issues, different challenges. So it's, it has to be people at home can't see what I'm doing, but my hands, I'm sort of, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm showing a, exactly the tentacles coming both from the bottom and the top stalactites and stalagmites, right? Like, oh, there coming we go. That's a more
1: friendly term than tentacle. Yes.
2: <laughs> to kind of meet in the middle, but public health won't work if it's only sort of from the community level up. And it won't work if it's only from the federal level down. Both of these things have to work in concert for there to be progress because otherwise you're not getting sort of, you're not learning from what other communities are doing, sort of from the top-down approach, but you're also not getting feedback on what different communities need if you aren't coming from the grassroots up.
1: Yeah. What's your take? You talked about all those community stuff, and I agree with you. Like, there's there is just some things that unless you work with the community, you would just never know it's a need that they have. So, what's your take on this term "laboratory for democracy"? This is a term that I came into when I was doing research into this, and the whole idea is that well, we don't we don't want these top-down federal preemption laws because we want localities and states to sort of figure out what works best for them. And my first instinct when I heard that term was negative. I was like, "Laboratory for democracy." Look at Florida. Look at Texas. <laughs> but what's your what's your take on that term?
2: Yeah, it's a I think a term that on one hand tries to brush off some of the responsibility, like, oh, well, you know, federal government isn't going to do anything until the states sort of figure it out for themselves. But I also think of it. On the positive too, it sort of have mixed emotions about the term, but I think of a lot about, you know, the progress we've seen when enough states take on an issue and pass a policy. Eventually it gets to the point where it no longer makes sense for the federal government to not do something. So thinking about the minimum age for alcohol for example, was something that states had all sorts of different laws and all sorts of different rules. And eventually it came to the point where the federal government was like, okay, like we need to step in and sort everybody out. And they didn't just say you have to have this, you know, minimum age 21. They said, well, you don't have to have a minimum age of 21. But if you don't do that, then you don't get our federal highway dollars, right? So there was sort of a, an incentive um, tied to that. We think about the expansion of extreme risk protection order laws. Uh, sort of thinking about gun policy, where 19 states and DC now have these laws. When prior to 2018, there were sort of two states um, with uh, this type of law. So eventually, the federal government released some model language, and I would expect in the next few years they're just going to say, "Okay, this is what we need to see in terms of a floor for this kind of law," because when enough states to get together and do something and, and see that it works, then that's a good evidence for the federal government.
1: Yeah. So solutions to, well, preemption is not a problem. So maybe solution is not the right term. But where we go from here?
0: From the public health perspective, somebody who's a, an advocate for patients, for communities, for people who want to protect the public health, what they want are savings clauses. This is the only way to guarantee that there is no preemption. Usually what this looks like is a statute that sets some state law, but then at the end or somewhere in the statute, it will say nothing in this statute preempts more restrictive state or local laws. Another thing I think, you know, in terms of trying to leverage preemption for public health purposes, I think the most public health friendly version of preemption is floor preemption, which is, is kind of setting the floor saying you cannot go less restrictive than this. So, you know, one potentially beneficial thing would basically be to try to raise the floor in certain areas to try to say, you know, the lowest standards should be higher.
1: And how do we do this?
0: And one way to approach that is, is to have really kind of evidence-based advocacy that having evidence, having research, having lived experiences, having people talk about how they would benefit from policies that can't be put in place because of preemption can be really effective. And I think that's the way to approach it is to, to appreciate communities and appreciate uh, people who live in cities and in counties that, that need a different approach and trying to convince the state to adopt more flexible laws.
1: So, I mean, these are very big picture solutions, but what can you do as an individual? Well, you can vote. We always come back to this. Always, always vote. Always vote. Yes. At all levels, not just federal and state level, but at all levels vote because your vote really impacts things that impacts you. But another thing is what you mentioned earlier, where people don't think about public health until something goes wrong. So, you know, spread the word about public health, learn about what public health initiatives are going on and when... Maybe one day you'll be a senator. Who knows? Maybe one day you'll be the president of the United States. But hopefully when more people learn about public health, there will be more impetus to think long term and think about things that we could prevent instead of just writing laws for today.
2: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about all the awesomeness that is public health. New
1: episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Everything is PH or Instagram at Everything is Public Health.
2: Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or to suggest a future episode topic. Also, you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Crafassi.
1: Please also give us a rating and a review on wherever you listen to your podcast. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page. You can find the link in the episode description below.
2: And remember... Everything is public health.
1: Everything is public health.